difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome to The Next Picture Show, a Movie of the Week podcast devoted to a classic film and how it shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Neil deGrasse Tyson. So, there are three rules for taking care of a mogwai. One, don't expose them to bright light. Two, don't get them wet. And three, don't feed them after midnight. I have no issues with rules one or two, but rule three makes no sense. Isn't it always after midnight and always before midnight too, for that matter? Isn't it turning midnight somewhere in the world at the top of every hour? Neil, Neil, please. No one wants to hear this from you. Don't you have some astrophysics to do? The stars are not going to count themselves. Fine. But you'll have me back for gravity, right? I have a lot to say about that movie. No, Neil, stay in your lane. Hey, look, Scott's here. Hey, what's up, guys? Hi. Are we ready to record? Okay, uh, the script's ready. Here we go. Segment one, introduction, music intro, Scott, colon. (laughs) Welcome to the Next Picture Show, a movie of the week podcast devoted to a classic film and how it shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Scott Tobias here with Genevieve Kosky, Joshua Robinson. <laughs> Keep that. Here on the Next Picture Show, we believe that no film exists in a vacuum and that all culture is more interesting in context. So every other week, we get together to talk over a classic film and consider how it relates to a current movie. This week, we've got two Hollywood sequels that know their sequels and set about deconstructing themselves as they make references to other movies and try to move their own stories forward. Genevieve, what do we got? When the first Deadpool came out two years ago, it offered an irreverent counterpoint to the rest of the Marvel line. While Marvel and Disney were off carefully managing the Marvel Cinematic Universe, Deadpool was like the kid lobbing spitballs from the back of the room. It was violent, it was profane, and most of all, it was conscious about how superhero movies worked. The new Deadpool 2 offers more of the same, with Ryan Reynolds cracking wise in a sequel that's full of brash style and comic self-awareness. The fusillade of references and meta-moments in Deadpool 2 calls to mind another irreverent sequel, Joe Dante's Gremlins 2, The New Batch. After Dante and producer Steven Spielberg turned the original 1984 Gremlins into a devilish Yuletide hit, Warner Brothers gave Dante carte blanche to do what he wanted with a follow-up, and he took full advantage. On the first episode this week, we'll look at Gremlins 2 and all the Looney Tunes comedy and gizmo torture that happens when you hand the keys to the kingdom over to a mischief maker like Joe Dante. Then, later in the week, we'll bring in Deadpool 2, which doesn't depart nearly as much from the original film as Gremlins 2, but continues to connect with audiences as Marvel's resident smart aleck. But hear me out now, Next Picture Show listeners. There are millions of rats in Chicago, and everybody hates them. But if one of them could power a podcast... Hmm. Remember the last time... We told you not to feed them after midnight. We told you to keep them away from the light. And the most important warning of all... We told you to never, ever get them wet. You didn't listen. They're mutating. Sir, is the building on fire? No, no, that's a false alarm. Uh, Are you trying to panic New York City? Absolutely not. So the monsters are real? I didn't say that. Gremlins 2. The new batch. Now, was that civilized? No, clearly not. Fun, but in no sense civilized. When Joe Dante was originally asked to make a sequel to Gremlins, he recalls turning down the offer because the original film was so difficult for him to make. When the studio tried and failed to produce a sequel on their own, they came back to Dante with an offer. Dante recalls, quote, They said to me, If you give us a couple of cans of films with gremlins in them next summer, you can do whatever you want. And they gave me three times the money we had to make the first one. So I made Gremlins 2, which was essentially about how there didn't need to be a sequel to Gremlins. End quote. The madness of Gremlins 2, the new batch, is the stuff of cult legend. Key and Peele did a great sketch about the pitch meaning for the film, which involved a sprightly Hollywood sequel doctor named Star Magic Jackson Jr. going around the table and accepting every crazy idea the writers had for it. A brainy gremlin that sings New York, New York? A spider gremlin? A googly-eyed gremlin? An electricity gremlin? Hulk Hogan breaking the fourth wall? All in the picture, and that's just a start. But Gremlins 2 shouldn't be understood as merely a throwaway lark or a prank on the studio that financed it. 
Dante believes that it's the film he'll be remembered by, an unrestrained and generously bankrolled expression of his sensibility. As a graduate of the Roger Corman School of Filmmaking, Dante essentially does Corman on a larger scale. Corman would give his directors a free hand so long as they included certain requisite elements for his movies to turn a profit. Here, Dante gave the studio all the gremlins it required and then some, and then allowed his imagination to run wild. One key to understanding Gremlins 2 is knowing that Dante hated Gizmo, the adorable little mogwai that sets both films in motion. Gizmo was a very popular merchandising item after Gremlins came out, but it was only on Steven Spielberg's insistence that he'd stay in the movie. Originally, Gizmo was going to turn into the mohawked ringleader of the Gremlins. In Gremlins 2, Gizmo was tortured virtually nonstop. He's shoved into a vent. He's jammed face first into the printing window of a copy machine. He's the damsel in distress tied to model railroad tracks. It's only when Gizmo does the gremlin-like thing of turning into Rambo that he finally gets back in the film's good graces. Dante identifies with the gremlins here from the opening title bit, which has nothing at all to do with the movie, other than Dante having license to screw around with Looney Tunes characters because Warner Brothers was a distributor. Watching Gremlins 2 is like touring Dante's film-addled brain. There are pop references to contemporary hits like Aliens and Rambo, but the film's sensibility is Tex Avery meets Frank Tashlin meets Jacques Tati and includes nods to The Birds, King Kong, Marathon Man, and The Wizard of Oz, as well as 50 science fiction and all-night horror movie marathons. With one backfiring office building as nearly its sole location, the film becomes an antic playground for Dante to crack jokes and make references to Gremlins itself, to other movies, to the fourth wall, and the commercial intent of a Hollywood production like Gremlins 2. Zach Gilligan and Phoebe Cates are back as Billy and Kate, the small-town lovebirds seeking to make it in the big city, and Dante favorite Dick Miller turns up, too, as Murray Futterman, who helps Billy and Kate contain the Gremlins. There's Hulk Hogan and Leonard Maltin as themselves, Christopher Lee as a mad scientist named Dr. Catheter, and Paul Bartell as a theater manager. Plus, there's a fantastic turn by John Glover as Daniel Clamp, a real estate and cable TV guru who's a cross between Donald Trump and Ted Turner, though more daft and charming than either of them. But mostly there's jokes. So many jokes. We'll talk about how many of them land after the break. Uh, what if one of them eats something at 11 o'clock, but then he gets something stuck in his teeth? Yeah, like a caraway seed or a sesame seed. Whatever, right, right. And then yeah. after 12 o'clock, it comes out. Now, he didn't eat that after midnight. Yeah, that's Look, right. I didn't make the rules, okay? The rules. I don't believe this. Oh, wait a minute. What about this? What if they're eating in an airplane and they cross a time zone? I mean, it's always midnight somewhere. <laughs> All right, so Gremlins two. Uh, let me let's start establish a baseline here. What, what what first of all is your what is your experience with the Gremlins movies, and then how did Gremlins hold up for you after that? Those are the two questions I have for you. I think I saw the original Gremlins four times in the theater, and I think I had, yeah I know I had the soundtrack album and listened to it uh, quite a bit, and I only saw Gremlins two uh, once in the theater, but but uh, I I enjoyed it immensely, and I enjoyed it immensely this time, as I'm sure everyone else did as well. <laughs> Keep setting yourself up for disappointment there. Uh, I saw uh, the first Gremlins in the theater uh, as a, a timid early teenager who like literally had to leave during the, <laughs> that, the first sequence where the Gremlin is loose in the in the lab um, with the needles. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was so wigged out by that. Like I had to go take a breather. I used to not be able to deal with horror movies at all. And it was honestly uh, working for the AV Club and kind of having to see horror movies on a regular basis that slowly brought me out of that. But <laughs> now I, you look like so jaded. You can see virtually anything. <laughs> I, I, I am actually fairly jaded, and I blame that on the AV Club, too. Where's the fourth human centipede? <laughs> <laughs> I've managed to get away without seeing any of those movies. If you tell me that one of them is a, a hilarious meta comedy full of human centipedes running around being goofy, first of all, I won't believe you. They actually do get meta. <laughs> I've oh, seen the God. first two, and they, they do get meta. But <laughs> Why, why but, didn't we pay hey, Dead, Deadpool yeah. 2 and Human Centipede 2? Yeah. Deadpool 2 does reference human centipede movies. Oh, my God. <laughs> 
my point is, I had the respect for it that like a good gun owner has for a gun. It's like, wow, that's that's really dangerous, but I'm really kind of impressed with it too. Mm-hmm. So it really stuck with me. It stuck with me the the weird tonal shifts and uh, like the emotion that goes into it. Even though it's, it's like at times it's a really goofy comedy, at times it's a pretty intense horror movie. Uh, at least for the young audience that wasn't prepared for it. And of course, uh, at the time, I, I followed the news about how it, I mean, it basically gave us the rating system, more or less as we have it today, minus the the specific breakouts for, you know, <laughs> teasing nudity, direct nudity, like extreme super violence, like whatever. That wasn't a part of it. But the idea that people could go into a theater not knowing what they were getting uh, was apparently a big deal back then. And, uh, you know, Gremlins messed with people's minds so much that <laughs> they had to change the system. Yeah, the, P- the PG rating covered a lot of ground that perhaps uh, did not account for some of the things that went in Gremlins and, and uh, Indiana Jones, uh, Temple of Doom. Uh, Gremlins 2 I saw in college, and I, I couldn't understand why anybody was doing this to me. <laughs> and I'm, I'm right back there today, but we'll get into that. I thought for sure you'd see it again and love it. I, <laughs> what, what, what about what Tasha's on? history would make you think no, I that? just I, because it's so obviously great, but uh, but but uh, oh my god! Uh, but what about you, Genevieve? Um, well, I saw the first Gremlins when I was way too young to <laughs> see it on VHS in one of those scenarios with a bunch of like family friend kids all shoved into the basement and put in front of a movie and i was the the youngest of the group you know and (laughs) and i think i was probably like four or five watching or being put in a position to watch gremlins for the first time i don't think i stuck around for it i have very vague memories of just being like very upset and not liking gremlins and i never really felt a need to return to it because of that early scarring experience but i actually did uh revisit the original gremlins before watching gremlins 2 which i had never seen before because of that early experience of the first gremlins it really it really doesn't matter <laughs> it doesn't it doesn't, it doesn't but, a little but, bit. you know i wanted to, i wanted to do my homework nope. my boyfriend had never seen it it was like you yeah. know it's we'll, we'll watch gremlins and like yeah gremlins is good I, I didn't really find it scary at this point in my life but i absolutely understand why it would have terrified me as a child so going into gremlins 2 I was kind of prepared for all the, because of like the background discussion we had of making this choice. And like, I knew that Tasha is not a fan of the film and Scott and Keith are very strong fans of the film. And I was just like, very curious to see where I would fall. And should I, should I drag this out a little, a little more? <laughs> I mean, we're, we're all, we're all sort of on center hooks. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I won't go so far as to say like, it's great. I fully like respect like how anarchic and throwing everything at the wall it is and like a lot of it I really did enjoy and I laughed a lot at it so I think I'm like firmly in the middle ground maybe leaning toward Scott and Keith's opinions I'm sorry Tasha oh, I feel like I've, I've disappointed you, you by, by not hating gremlins too but down. I just have so much love in my heart I think it was a spider gremlin that, that really made me love it <laughs> <laughs> okay okay wait what the thing you, fear, the you? Thing you fear the most see that that, that was sarcasm <laughs> okay. That, that, that was a joke as of the sort that you might see in Gremlins 2. No, but. a joke of the sort I might see in Gremlins 2 would be Christopher Lee walking around with a giant pod. And I, I'm assuming that you came out of that giant pod and you're a pod person because you are trying to tell me, A, that this is a good movie and B, I think, <laughs> that spiders are good. I, I will say it's, I found it an enjoyable movie. Like, I think good is like a much more subjective thing, depending on like what you expect out of this movie, what what you want out of it. And I guess how you feel about Dante's approach to filmmaking in general. But yeah, I don't know. I'm not mad at Gremlins 2. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> but now I'm afraid I've disappointed Scott by not you loving not like it, it enough. enough. Yeah. No, I, I mean, I, I think well, it, Scott, I yeah. mean, to be, to be fair, in the, in the conversations we were having about this, Scott yes. repeatedly and vehemently said, this is Dante's best movie. I do. I think it's his best film. I think it's one of the best films of that decade. I think it's truly an absolute comic masterpiece. I think you were uh, on all the drugs. <laughs> and I would like to know what drugs you were just, on so I can I, have I some of the I think it's drugs. so <laughs> conceptually smart dante has found as i said in the intro this playground for him to run wild with things that obsess him and make him laugh and then he in th- the film is just so packed not just with jokes i mean there's jokes everywhere but also with just such specific quirky 
Dante things, you know, things like this Canadian restaurant <laughs> where <laughs> Mounties uh, uh, serve, uh, serve. They clean serve the fish right at your table. They clean the fish right at your table, and and, or, and stuff like you know all the things that are said by the, uh, the automated building by the automated just, building. I, I, I are love, so love funny, that. just like Mister, welcome to the men's room, <laughs> or, or Hey, pal, I sure hope you wash those hands. All that stuff is so smart and then it runs amok with gremlins causing all sorts of uh trouble so it's got that going for it and and i think it's like as i said in the intro it's that mix of tex avery of course you've got all the looney tunes references in the film but i think i should draw the other comparison which is the, that i made uh, or one of the other comparisons i made in the intro which is to jacques tati mm-hmm. uh jacques tati did a film called mononcle that is about his character's relationship to this fully automated house and all the things that just completely go wrong as he tries to sort of navigate in this environment. And so for him to kind of include that element in here as well on top of the gremlins and and have them sort of interact in a thematically meaningful way and I think a comedically productive way, I don't know. I just think this film is a delight. We should do a quick tip of the hat to Charlie Haas, who's the writer, uh, was Dante's partner on this and Matinee, which is a, okay, a, a, yeah. maybe my vote for the best Joe Dante movie, which is sort of like all his obsessions packed into a, a more a more a more conventional narrative. Not conventional narrative, but a more heartfelt and, and, and grounded it's a, narrative. It's the uh, Cuban Missile Crisis. You yeah. uh, enjoy anything that involves the... Maybe, maybe that. <laughs> I don't know. It's the political aspects of the film. Yeah. Yeah. Is this that unconventional of a narrative, or is it a pretty conventional narrative just with a lot of surprising stuff thrown on yeah, top of it? I, I, well, <laughs> neither. Con- conventional in the sense that it's a, you know... A super skyscraper overrun by tiny creatures. I guess. Yeah. That, I guess that, that's conventional. But uh, <laughs> well, I mean, uh, it's, it's kind of a towering inferno true. narrative. It's just gremlins instead of fire. True. Yeah. <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah, they had even have a hose, right, to to, uh, <laughs> to take care of the gremlins. And then I, li- I like the plan. You got the fire hose, and then you have the electricity gremlin, and it all backfires. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy, the electricity gremlin! I, I, if, if I had to guess, I would I would guess that a, a large part of Tasha's objections to this film comes down to the electricity gremlin. <laughs> I mean, like just to, to be a little Neil deGrasse Tyson for a second, electricity. <laughs> yeah, where did he go? By the way, DNA. Yeah, <laughs> we, we chased him out. Like we only have four chairs here in Sweet Emotion Studios. Yeah. So I mean, there's a, there's only a certain level of pedantry we'll, we will uh, <laughs> we will be able to withstand here at Sweet Emotion studios like keith telling me as i was doing my introduction that gremlins wasn't a yuletide hit in the sense that it came out during the summer right but everybody it's knows true. it's a christmas it's a christmas story exactly it's, it's exactly but i can see where the, i can see where the wording would make some people itch yeah. but back to your pet so, pet so, yes, go so ahead. back to my pedantry dna does not cannot be drawn from electricity and drinking electricity dna will not turn you into an electricity monster I yeah just, you're I, right I don't, like this movie. I don't like this movie anymore <laughs> that's, that's sort of how i figured everybody would take it yeah. i figured that you guys had maybe overlooked that facet yeah. of it yeah exactly so, okay so like leaving aside every Every dumb plot point like that. And uh, there's so many of them. There's so so many of them. To me, this movie is, it's shapeless and it's baggy. It Mm -hmm. draws out its, uh, its beats too long. It's repetitive. Like the, the whole torturing gizmo thing, just, I don't enjoy it. But it's a running joke. The individual segments of it are just like, oh, okay, now it's a, now it's this thing. Now it's that thing. Now it's the other thing. It just, it over and over and over the whole business with the gremlins drinking stuff. It's like, and now yet another gremlin is going to drink yet another bottle of DNA and turn into yet another weirdo thing. It just, it seems so pointlessly repetitive to me. And like, it's like Scott is gizmo and you're torturing him with your words. No, no, he's torturing me. I'm tied to the train tracks here and he's going, gremlins do is great. You're talking... <laughs> You can't, you can't be talking to me about a movie that breaks down halfway through <laughs> for yeah. a shadow puppet show that is then interrupted by Hulk Hogan hulking out in the middle of the theater. I enjoyed that sequence. What Run I, by Paul Bartel. What I enjoy even more is the fact that for the VHS, they shot I know. a completely different I know. version did, did where watch? the VHS tape reels break. Did you, did you guys watch that too? I, did, I didn't see that yeah. one. No, yeah. I, I, no, I read it, about it. It's on the Blu-ray and, and it's like the track, like a tracking program. And I swear the first time I watched this movie on VHS, I fell, the, fell for it. I'd forgotten. <laughs> What was did what, you see in the theater? It's on the theater. I got to enjoy that that I, effect. Yeah, I, I watched it on streaming, and I feel like we need a, a streaming version of it where you get like a buffering. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it did occur to me to wonder if he'd ever done any more updates because that you know that's that is dedication. I think they were done giving money to, to Joe Dante for this movie at that point. <laughs> that would be really <laughs> funny if they, if they went up. Please. 
please, Joe. Someone here says another hundred grand. Shoot this again. But so many of the characters are are cardboardy mm. and, and boring. I mean, I just, mm. I just. But but you don't think the film is like kind of poking fun at that fact? Sure. I mean, you really just have the only character that really. I mean, resonates is John Glover, which is fine, right? I mean, he's terrific. And, it is really weird that he's the only character that resonates. Yeah, though. but it's fine. I mean, and, and you like the other ones. The other ones, the other people are likable, do and I? they're trying. They're trying. Yeah, to I want do the best for, for Billy and Kate. And right? you don't like Murray. You don't like like you don't like uh, yeah, Billy and Kate. Okay, so what is Dick with Miller? Billy and Dick, Kate? Dick, like, Dick Miller. Billy and do Kate don't come across to me as liking each other. Like, are they supposed to be a couple that we care about and root for? They're home yeah, yeah, they're, they're, they're sweethearts. Yeah. I from the beginning in the big city, sweet, just trying yeah. to make it. Yeah, they want to get I, married. nothing about those performances. Uh, like, I don't see any like affection in them at all. They're they're really you try being weird. affectionate when there's weird gremlins running around. <laughs> yeah, they're I mean, a team. They do a good job of trying to trying to thwart the all the, the time. Gremlins? Have you seen our political system lately? And yet, I still <laughs> oh, love my husband. Oh, topical, topical <laughs> humor. <laughs> so the archery channel did nothing for you. Oh my! Somebody God. walking out of the archery channel and just snapping an arrow in half that, in anger that didn't do it for you. What about the microwave with Marge show thing. that didn't that didn't win? Was a winner. The for microwave you? with Marge show is yet another thing that for me just it's a it's an interesting joke that goes on too long. Mm. To me, the whole this whole movie just feels like throwing jokes at a wall to see what hits. And yes. it's and like what's your problem with it. <laughs> well, my problem with that is I've seen it done better. Like uh, so much of this humor is like the, the very very specific. Uh, kind of combination of weirdo anarchic humor uh, that that Zaz did. Like this movie feels to me like Airplane. Like the the chocolate mousse being pushed out. Would you make? Can I cut you an antler? Like mm-hmm. that is a pure Airplane gag. Sure, but. I don't know. Airplane. But, but, I, but it's not an airplane, necessarily an airplane gag to have an entire Canadian themed restaurant <laughs> that leads to that gag. And what about pulling the fire alarm and the, and the, and the, and the, the fire. fire, the untamed element, <laughs> enact the age old drama of self preservation? It's so, it's it's just, I, don't, I think it's just loaded with jokes. And I think or maybe that's the thing. You just, you, you find that, you, you either find the jokes funny or you don't. But, but I, here's I, the thing I do find a lot of these jokes funny. That doesn't make it like a good narrative to me or an interesting narrative or a convincing narrative it doesn't make the characters anything other than plastic and so much of this movie like all of the conversations we had about ready player one just sort of regurgitating references and tropes without commenting on them i there's so much that happens in this movie that's just like oh a gremlin is melting let's do the wizard of oz thing uh a mogwai is angry let's do a rambo thing like they feel so like there's no (laughs) there's no context there's no way that they're making these references more interesting there's wit what is witty what is witty about the wizard of oz joke that is different from the way references are just presented that specific joke is is low-hanging i'm gonna i'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna throw out and answer that question. There's a gremlin involved, and the gremlins are funny. <laughs> oh, <I> mean, <laughs> the gremlins are inherently funny, and seeing gremlins well, do people things. Okay, well, well, uh, I, I want to like back away from the contentiousness sure, here, okay. and I, I'm gonna like attempt to find some middle ground, and I'm preparing just to be shot down all over again. But speaking of the gremlins, Tasha, as someone who likes practical effects and puppetry like how do you yeah. feel about like the evolution of the gremlins as creatures in this film it occurred to me that between this and dark crystal we do a lot of puppet movies on yeah. this, on this and, show. And Kubo. you know uh oh, yeah. the the movement of uh of the gremlins specifically like i find a little stiff and predictable especially when they're just hung up everywhere mm-hmm. the creation of them like the the way they're painted like the way they're all different the colors of them the textures of them is amazing yeah and like watching gizmo in particular like for the time he is a really impressive special effect like he is a really convincing little puppet creature that i feel for like even in in kind of process shots that like process shots over the time were not necessarily great but when he's doing his little dancing thing out of nowhere like i was pretty convinced by yeah, that see, seeing gizmo's legs in this reminded me of seeing kermit's legs oh, in, yeah. in muppet movie for, for the first time you're like what are those <laughs> yeah how, how is that happening but yeah with all apologies to dante i really like gizmo in both in both <laughs> movies i mean i'm sorry I, I'm, I'm supposed to like him right I think the fact that he hates Gizmo may kind of speak to one of the things I don't like about this movie is one of the things that I think is so interesting about the first Gremlins movie is there's like that wacky anarchic sense of humor, but there's also a sincerity to it. When Phoebe Cates tells that horrible story about her dad, which is (laughs) mercilessly lampooned here, it is it's a ridiculous over the top moment, but she she puts feeling into it and the film pauses and gives that moment emotional space like it believes in that moment 
even though it is, if you think about it, a ridiculous moment. And here, apparently, Dante is thinking about it and proclaiming it to be a ridiculous moment. <laughs> this movie makes fun of the Gremlins' rules mm-hmm. in a way that it, like, says to me that all of the things that, that were interesting or that people connected to or that were unique in the first movie, Dante seems to think are hot garbage. And to me... That's just it's it's a level of sneering insincerity that I'm really surprised to see you embrace. Okay, well, let me address a couple of points. I'll address that point in a bit. The first thing I wanted to say, I think one observation I I guess I would make is I think you're imposing a expectation of how Gremlins 2 is supposed to work that really doesn't apply to talk about it. It's narrative weaknesses, for example, or it's cardboard characters. I don't really think those are concerns that Dante really has in making this movie. I think his idea is just to have a conceit that is going to allow him to wreak havoc. And so all of these other elements are not as important as they were in the first Gremlins movie. As far as like just tearing away at the canvas, which is what I guess what he's doing here, I mean, I think this is just kind of a working out of of those feelings. I mean, he doesn't... Dante is, uh, I think, came to Gremlins a little bit uncomfortable with his role as being a commercial filmmaker and in fact resisted making Gremlins 2 for that reason. I think he found a lot to dislike about making a movie in a studio and and I think there are certain compulsory elements in Gremlins that perhaps he didn't cotton to all of that much. Maybe he actually did want, he almost certainly wanted Gizmo to become the Mohawk Gremlin and be done with it. So, So things like that, I'm sure he was looking to kind of you know, with given the freedom that he had here, you get a chance to engage in a little bit of playful critique, self critique, which I think the movie does and does well. I mean, and so and and then he can also critique this Neil deGrasse Tyson esque pedantry by by having uh, characters talk about the whole feed them after yeah. midnight rule. I think that's all perfectly clever. Or you know, at the end of the film, talking about you know dolls with suction cups staring off out of car windows. I mean, I you know his that expresses a certain amount of discomfort with contributing to you know films as commercial products and merchandising that sort of thing and so i think all of this is playful and not necessarily hostile to the original film maybe or maybe it is i don't know i, I think it i think both films work in very different ways and they, they work on their own terms but I, th- I i think it's a mistake if you try to apply the terms on which gremlins was operating to how gremlins 2 is operating which i because i think gremlins 2 is just a completely different animal it's a new batch <laughs> yeah um, but I'm hosting this show. I should be asking you questions. <laughs> I'm just well, arguing, I'm I'm just arguing with Tasha. I'm curious you have thoughts on that, on that statement. I, I think it's interesting that like this defense is coming from Scott anti-extratextual information to bias. Because like, I think the element of Dante not wanting to do a sequel and this being his response to being compelled to do one anyway like makes it work in a way that if this were a sincere venture on his part and like this is like the direction that he really wanted to take the Gremlins franchise in, it would not have worked. So I think just in terms of sort of the sincerity question, this is one where authorial intent, I guess, is crucial to how you feel about that. And personally, like I respect Dante's impulse in this situation. Like Gremlins is not a movie that needed a sequel. And I think the fact that this is how he chose to address the demand for a sequel is admirable and makes the movie admirable by extension. I think in some movies, the extra textual becomes the text. Mm-hmm. And then I was, I was, this is kind of like, what if I made my own Mad Magazine parody of a Gremlins movie? And, and uh, on that, I think it's just, it's just so much fun I, uh, all the way through. All the way through. Okay, okay. Do you think it's a funny movie? But do you think it's a good movie? Yeah, sure. Are those things interchangeable? Yeah, no, I mean, I'm not sure they're necessarily interchangeable in that sense, but but I think think you can have a funny movie that's not necessarily that great. See part two of this episode. Um, (laughs) But... uh, um, but in this case, I think, you know, it, it sees through this idea all, all the way uh, from beginning to end and, and realizes it really thoroughly. I think one thing that, that just bothers me about Gremlins 2 is the parts that I like. I see a huge gap between the jokes, the performances that are fun, the fourth wall breaking that's so like daring and unexpected, and so much of the other stuff. You know, for me, there's just there's a huge gap there that is sort of one of the hallmarks of kind of a bad movie is that it so much of it doesn't hit the heights of its best stuff. So it's more uneven than bad, then, right? I mean, uneven is away from. <laughs> just a movie I'm trying to bad. like, yeah. <laughs> 
Um, well, I, I guess it's like you're how, trying to Juno me into liking this movie. <laughs> it's not going to happen. It, it, I, I guess like how bad do the bad elements have to be for the whole movie to be bad? You know, like like for me, like uh, just bad. <laughs> but, but like for me, like. I, I agree that there's like a lot of jokes that are low hanging fruit that don't really land that aren't really jokes that are just like see what I did their references. They just kind of like melt into the the fabric of the film for me. Like they don't necessarily strike me as bum notes. So I come away with it remembering the high notes of that it hits of like the jokes that I do like and not particularly dwelling or even remembering those bum notes. I, I guess. Yeah, I mean, I think that they're, you know, having the Wizard of Oz reference or having Billy strapped to a dentist chair and him saying, is it safe? I mean, that is definitely going for the obvious reference. But then you also have this uh, John Glover character who has prepared a special tape just for the apocalypse. <laughs> <laughs> who's, you know, which ends with, we hope you have enjoyed life. I mean, just like, this is such a weird thing to in- include. And it's so idiosyncratic. And just, that you know, that amazing fourth wall break that's so well conceptualized but then within it there's so many surprises and so much fun of having like these shadow puppets and one of them being abraham lincoln and in <laughs> the, the hulkster doing uh, his thing i just i think it's so unexpected and, and spontaneous and inspired i mean i think that you know you're just gonna have to let a, f- a couple of things go which, which is by the way the case of every single other spoof ever made i mean airplane has its duds too and i think it's a great movie yeah i, I think the same imp- the let's make some references impulse uh you know you get some low-hanging fruit, as, as as we've said, but also you, you get a full-on Busby Berkeley-style musical number at the end. Like, <laughs> Which Tasha hates. Oh, no. I didn't hate. I'm shaking my head because it, it's just it's such a WTF moment. I, I don't even know where to put it. That whole sequence with so many gremlins in the lobby at once doing so many things, you, you feel like you're kind of losing your mind looking at it. It's like it's like you know, Joe Dante is channeling Hieronymus Bosch or something. It, it, I mean, it, it does it does feel a little bit like uh, like a psychopathic version of Jim Henson. Sure. You know, because he also used to fill his sets with that kind of density and, you know, with all of these characters going crazy. And it like it feels like that, except, you know, more dangerous. Mm-hmm. But I mean, the, the fact that you referred to the musical number with, you know, Gershwin and the whole thing as sort of a WTF moment, I think, again, kind of gets to my point about bringing certain narrative expectations to this film that that it it has no intent on delivering right i mean of course it's what i mean this whole movie is a wtf moment it's anarchy it's fun it's like you know you know it's okay to it's created this environment in which spontaneous crazy quirky things can happen and that's all you need if you don't you don't have to impose this other stuff on it yeah i i think that you're you're taking some of these objections as though i walked into gremlins 2 with a like a clipboard and a checklist <laughs> saying if this movie does not hit all of these notes i will sh- i shall be unsatisfied um <laughs> yeah. and it's not like that i'm trying to figure out how to put into words some of my emotional reactions to this movie which were kind of boredom for a lot of it mm-hmm. um but you know it's it's not a matter of expectations i i as strongly as you feel that extra textuals shouldn't matter i feel like you should not ever walk into a movie with expectations that you're just setting yourself up for disappointment um i think that's why i have such a lifelong fascination with book to film adaptations because it's so hard to go into those with no expectations if you've read the book mm-hmm. so i didn't walk into this saying this has to be like gremlins right you should never do that with a sequel. Too many people do that with a sequel, including the studio, which apparently yeah, thought yeah. anything with Gremlins in it was going to make original Gremlins money. Yeah. No, I'm just trying to express how I felt about this movie watching this movie, not how I felt about what this movie was supposed to be doing, which is only a list of okay. things in my head. Tasha, I would just like to say for the record... I'm not mad at you for not liking Gremlins 2. I think you are entitled to your opinion. <laughs> I mean, I'm not mad at Scott or, or no, Keith neither, for liking yeah. this movie. Oh, I, I'm just, I literally am baffled. Like, really? I, yeah, seriously. Because Even after all of our discussion of, of talking about what, what we respond to in it, like, do, do you understand our response to the film? Not entirely. Like, I would understand a total stranger saying all of these things to me, but I'm just, I'm so used to Scott being a proponent of quiet, thoughtful masterclass cinema of deeply felt emotional moments and incredibly, like, impeccably crafted visuals of people who think very sincerely about where to put the camera and how to feel an emotion. And this, for me, is just, it's such a, like, a wackadoo throw crap at the wall and see what sticks movie. 
it's hard for me to understand. Like, I, I don't feel that way about Keith because Keith's, Keith's tastes... Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm lowbrow. <laughs> no, Keith's tastes have always been so broad. Like, uh, you're capable of finding things to appreciate in movies on so many different spectrums. Like, I've always found that really admirable. I, I don't know, like, Scott... I'm Mr. Fun. <laughs> Scott loves his torture porn. I, maybe, I like every... his comedy torture porn. I like all sorts of different things, including... And I think there's, a, there's craft here, and there's intent, and... and artistry and you know this isn't just you know there is because it's a spoof there's there's a lot of throwing of crap of the wall but you know, it's a, it's interesting crap Tasha mm-hmm. in thinking about this movie have you taken into account that there's a sexy lady gremlin <laughs> oh my god the sexy lady <laughs> I, 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 I will say I do not like the sexy lady gremlin I'm, I'm right there with you She's I'm clutching your head so, about the sexy so lady it wasn't gremlin. Like great. but can we talk about can we talk about what our favorite gremlins are Go around the table. Mm. So I like the really dumb one. Um, the googly-eyed one? No, there's a googly-eyed one, but there's like the, the, the kind of like yokel one. But uh, With the teeth, with the buck yeah, teeth? Yeah, buck yeah teeth. but I also like the guy who's always with him, like just a really mean, surly-looking gremlin. Uh, that's, that's a favorite. It's a good pairing. Uh, Genevieve, do you have any favorite gremlins? Well, I, I joked about the spider gremlin because... Those of you who have listened to this podcast for a long time know that I have a huge aversion to spiders and just the sight of them. So I was prepared for the spider gremlin going into this, and it was not nearly as horrifying as I had uh, prepared myself for. But I don't know. Let's see. My favorite gremlin, I can't say necessarily that he's my favorite gremlin in terms of like his gremlinness, but in terms of the gag that he facilitates, I really like the bat gremlin and the, <laughs> the payoff with the concrete and the turning into the gargoyle. Mm-hmm. Uh, That's a good one. Yeah. Bat gremlin. Tasha? Is that... All right. Am I insane or is that like an extended reference to Larry Cohen's cue? Like a visually speaking? Yeah, look, it looks like... I mean, just, just seeing that stop motion gremlin flying through the air, it looks a lot like the monster yeah. That's an interesting point, yeah. Yeah, I just I couldn't tell whether it was just because now the... there's a low hanging fruit reference for you. <laughs> I guess it would have been at the time though. I mean, this wasn't that far off from uh... about ten years. Yeah, he was on cable all the time. Was though. Q in that, all the way back in 1980? 82. So. 82. Okay. Wow, you know that? You, the... No, I've got it in front of me. Oh. We're all sitting here <laughs> Come with laptops. On, Tasha. Is Tasha you didn't have all of of Larry Cohen's filmography in your head? You know, uh, the the long list of gremlins in this movie has just completely pushed I'd that have been out. Super of my impressed if you did, if if that was if you just had uh-huh. instant recall on on when Q was made. Apparently, I should have lied and uh, said that I did because I've got like a lot of ground to make up in terms of you respecting <laughs> me after this podcast. Oh no, of course, always respect. It all always, comes down to what your favorite gremlin is. This is this is what will make respect. us respect maybe, you. Maybe this, maybe this is where we'll come together, Tasha. I don't even understand why there's a question. Uh, Tony Randall is is the brain. Uh, Oh, of course, yeah. Brainy I mean, Gremlin. He is Brainy Gremlin is mm-hmm. the voice of this movie. Like he is, yeah. he is the voice explaining, like why the anarchy, like what is going through all of these things. Had they're they're just they're a bunch of like little. Well, they're literally gremlins. Like I, I keep coming back to these are meant to be evocative of the things that messed up uh, like airplanes in in World War Two. Mm-hmm. Like this is meant to be evocative of just the idea that things break down and there's chaos and the center can't hold. This is them personified. But he is a version of them that expresses that like in intellectual terms. And it's it, mm-hmm. endlessly hilarious to me. Yeah. Also, but- that accent, it's like <laughs> like an American trying to do a bad English accent. It is such a weird accent. <laughs> now, was that civilized? No, <laughs> fun, but in no sense civilized. I, yeah, I, you're 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 correct, Tasha. We will come together. We will ah, come good. together. That brainy. Uh, I'm glad I'm right about something. The, the brainy gremlin. Well, I mean, when he's on that panel show in his professorial style, and he and he's he's name checking all the things that uh, <laughs> that comprise civilization: the Geneva Convention, Susan Sontag, din- <laughs> dinette sets, uh, convenient credit even when you've been turned down in the past. I mean, that is just, that is a great list of what makes a civilization a civilization. I mean, it's both a hilarious description of civilization and a, a hilariously wrong-headed idea of what the gremlins want. Like, it really seems like what the gremlins want is to destroy. And the idea that what the gremlins secretly want is Susan Sontag is just well, hilarious on the face yeah, of it. Yeah, but it's, isn't that, like, intercut with, like, 
visuals of other gremlins like just destroying everything yeah yeah i think it's it's like very intentionally like you're supposed to think like that's clearly not what the gremlins want oh sure i mean in his own way like he's also being anarchic he's he is spouting nonsense for the like the cable tv crowd basically he is being a talking head pundit who has no idea what he's talking about but is saying it with the utmost authority and i think that's very deliberate fun but in no sense civilized um (laughs) tasha you're very there's a good job on uh, your favorite gremlin <laughs> but but well, who's our favorite non-gremlin well in this movie? I, I mean i'm gonna cheat on this because you've already expressed your opinion of john glover in this movie mm-hmm. he is just such a weird delight like he makes no narrative sense like he's mm-hmm. meant to be this incredibly powerful mogul with all of this vision and he's like a complete dimwit mm-hmm. but he embodies the sincerity that i think is missing from this movie like that apocalypse tape that you mentioned yeah. the fact that he created that the degree to which he embraces like just everything he sees oh my gosh this art it's perfect i want to make a town exactly like that oh my gosh like everything he sees he loves but he's incredibly dumb and easily led and easily manipulated and it's never not fun like the character is utterly sincere and believes in everything that he's saying in a way practically none of the rest of the film does that is my my final answer but i am also going to just like throw out a line there for don and dan stanton as martin and lewis the (laughs) presumably cloned scientists (laughs) who are just it's just it's a visual gag that just keeps on giving throughout the entire film yeah they're, they're they're really good I found myself thinking I'd be much more okay with Daniel Clamp being president uh, than, <laughs> than the man who ins- uh, partially inspired him. Uh, I do enjoy his his fake Art of the Deal book cover. What's what's his what's his autobiography called? I, I, I took Manhattan, I believe. Yeah, yeah, pretty <laughs> Clamp. Manhattan, yeah. yeah, but um, I mean, I enjoyed. I I always enjoy um, uh, that guy Dick Miller uh, <laughs> when when he's in a movie, um, and and he's a lot of fun. It's, it's fun to see him get a little bit more to do than just just one scene or so and and he seems to be enjoying it as well if anyone's having fun in this movie it's it's dick miller yeah and um i mean both of my choices have already been spoken for so i will just i will say that like i enjoy murray's validation or vindication of what he has been feeling and what he has been traumatized by and like being able to stare it face to face and to take it down like i think like that in terms of this being a sequel and in terms of there being some like narrative and character connection between the two films uh, i think you get that most in murray more so than in billy and kate it's a redemptive arc yes exactly yeah and i'd like to give a shout out to uh robert prosky as grandpa fred who is the host of a horror movie marathon show that is uh being pushed further and further into the night and uh but he has he has some broadcasting chops that he gets to use once the gremlins take over the building so i I enjoyed that character and it just got me thinking now all of these characters that we did enjoy, you know, with Christopher Lee and Robert Prosky and Robert Picardo and, and um, John Glover. Key Luke. Haviland Morris as uh, Marla Bloodstone as well. I thought that was a really yeah. good performance. Yeah. No, I mean, it just like, it seems fitting for a film that is really such so much of a doodle of a film that the marginal characters would be the ones that would be more colorful and exciting to us than the, than the main characters. I mean, this is so much a movie about little incidental silly moments rather than some driving, you know, narrative force or so which you end, end up having maybe the lead characters who are not that compelling to us, but a whole lot of people on the side who are kind of a delight to, to, to see. I mean, it's very much got an Animaniacs feel to it. Mm-hmm. It's it's very clearly something that's sort of evoking that idea of taking place on the Warner backlot and evoking all of these Warner properties. And uh, one of the Gremlins gets a Warner Brothers you know shield painted onto its chest or tattooed, I guess, onto yeah. its chest. And then like all of these references, like it's it's evoking that kind of particular brand of insider biz nonsense and part of that is having a huge collection of character actors who you know that's that feel of they were just hanging around the lot so of course like all your old favorites are here hanging out uh to get meta because what an appropriate episode <laughs> to get meta uh on uh when i arrived here at sweet emulsion studios uh mm-hmm. scott's uh young daughter was watching animaniacs and i said oh my favorite so maybe that right there is sort of the the key to why i i liked gremlins too so much that's right well with with that here at uh, sweet emotion studios we're going to take a break and we'll be back with feedback
now it's time for feedback when our listeners weigh in with their responses on recent episodes and anything else in the world of film. We have a couple of thoughts on our X2 Infinity War pairing that we'd like to share with you. Tasha, want to start us off? Sure. Um, This one is from listener Ben. He writes, Your recent episode on X2 got me thinking about the mutant metaphor and how it's changed since the X-Men were first created in 1963. As you noted, parallels are often drawn between the mutant struggle and the civil rights movement. And more recently, we've seen the metaphor extend beyond race to other forms of difference, like sexuality and immigration status. However, while the X-Men themselves have typically had some degree of diversity since the debut of Storm, Thunderbird, and Sunfire in Giant Size X-Men number one, the teams in the comics and the films still largely focus upon your standard white, cisgender, and straight action figure types. The result is stories that try to evoke difference as a social issue, yet still shy away from difference in their own casts. That approach may have been a necessary evil in the 60s, when a comic about godlike African Americans could start riots, but the X-Men's mostly vanilla casts seem less defensible to me as representation has become more of a concern in entertainment. Why shouldn't the X-Men be as diverse as the Fast and the Furious, especially when the X-Men are ostensibly about protecting diversity from those who fear and hate it? Perhaps such a shift has already begun with Deadpool 2, which features a more varied team than any other X-Men film so far. If the Deadpool sequel is as successful as expected, then I hope the popularity of its characters inspires Fox to make bolder casting choices in the mainstream X-Men films as well. In the year of 2018, putting fancy sunglasses on James Marsden and having him talk about how hard it is to be different just doesn't cut it anymore. I think it's interesting that Ben uh, notes that about Deadpool 2 here, because this letter came to us before Deadpool 2 came out, but uh, Deadpool 2 does include a joke about uh, the X-Men as an outdated uh, metaphor for, for an outdated metaphor for racism mm-hmm. in the 60s. Yeah, so this that's kind of speaking directly to this. Is it possible <laughs> that Deadpool wrote this? that would be so deadpool do we really is there really any need for criticism at all now that deadpool and deadpool 2 exist um but this is this is all a good point and i I, you can can we do better than than james marsden with his fancy sunglasses i think we can i think you can do better than cyclops in general cyclops is just such a nothing character Uh, i've come to really like cyclops over the years uh um i mean alex papadamus has a really good uh essay in grantland in 2014 uh called uh uh, difficult X-Men in defense of Cyclops. It's very much worth digging up. I've been called in our, our, our household, the, the Cyclops of the, the Keen Phipps household uh, as, as sort of the, you know, a easily annoyed uh, rules enforcer of the house. Uh, I, I saw, you know, it's the, 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 the identification has grown over the years too. Wait, what, which X-Men are the other members of your household? <laughs> we got that far, actually. I'm not sure you can have a Cyclops by himself. That character is defined by his interactions with other people. Yeah, and also, uh, just a nerdy side note, I, I, I through the comic book legal defense fund, I ordered a copy of an X-Men grand design by Ed Piscor, which is this really cool comic, but uh, he was doing a limited number for this charity of, of sketches in the middle uh, in, in the opening, you know, uh, of the book and you didn't get to choose, but uh, my, my man, uh, my man Cyclops showed up in my copy and I was very happy. <laughs> I think this letter is a really good point. And I think it's sort of an unfortunate outgrowth of how much of the current film comics landscape comes out of characters that were created somewhere between the 40s and the 60s. There's so much stuff that, like watching the MCU navigate having characters with names like Proxima Midnight, or just (laughs) having, like, some of the, some of the things that came out of the specific eras of comics when these characters were invented. It's like, if you want to keep the fans, if you want to respect your legacy, you have to keep all of these elements, but at the same time some of these elements just look really really goofy today and some of them look kind of problematic so like i am still waiting for an x-men film to focus as much on storm as like the Mm -hmm. the that character is worth given how many interesting changes have she's gone through how many really cool narratives have been built around her i do think that it would be nice to have an x-men that was a little less like bland and white and not in a first class kind of way where the uh the person of color is there so he can die first in a stupid way yeah i think that's fair and i I think the comics have probably done a better job of diversifying the lineup over the years uh than than the films have but hopefully they'll catch up well i mean they're in the process of catching up there's a ms marvel uh movie in planning and the miles morales Mm -hmm. the first miles morales spider-man movie into the spider-verse is coming out later this year i mean x-men specifically Mm -hmm. um you know which is which still has a little ways to go there's a lot of them though there's a lot of mutants right oh yeah yeah but i think it's a good it's a good point a good letter uh this next one is an interesting question we got on infinity war from twitter a, a user named at Gamuki, <laughs> he writes, 
Loved your Infinity War discussion. I was especially impressed by Scott's trenchant insights. <laughs> Wait a minute, that part wasn't there. Um, uh, what do you think of the shift of the Marvel story template from, quote, hero with father issues to, quote, hero who is a troubled father figure? Are the films aging with the target demographic? So who's you referring to here is the, the hero who is a, tr- a troubled father figure. I mean, there's been a lot said that Thanos is the true hero of Infinity War, yeah. and he's unquestionably a troubled father figure, but you could also really point to Tony Stark. Yeah, yeah I was going to say, Tony character. with Peter these days is kind of a troubled father figure. Mm-hmm. And and, uh, and, I, and I mean, Thor, the last Thor movie was a, a daddy issues movie to an extent, mm-hmm. and uh, the Guardians 2 was a daddy issues movie and you know like it's it's definitely something they've been trending toward in their in their recent films uh i'm not so sure about part of the question about is it aging with a target demographic because like i'm not sure what the target demographic is in in this hypothetical it currently seems to be everyone yeah <laughs> the, the mcu definitely the target I mean, is the bad, is the thought that maybe they the people who started watching with iron man and it's 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 grown been around for so yeah, long they've sense. grown up a little bit or but but you're right the target demographic is everyone so it doesn't really matter. i mean i feel like that's less a question of who the movies are aimed for and more a question of who the movies are being written by mm-hmm. i think it's less that the demographic is aging and more that the creators are themselves as so many creators are kind of putting themselves into their work and you know if you've been in this industry for decades you're probably not a troubled teen trying to come to terms <laughs> with dad so much as you know you're looking at some of these older issues they're going to bleed in so it's going to be like those later shrek films where it's like shrek feeling like put down at work or whatever and and uh where <laughs> he, he's he's obsolete or, or the ice age films or things are kind of the same thing That's yeah kind of like, <laughs> i was going to bring that up of, yeah. of all of chronic the chronic back pain there's a lot of chronic <laughs> <laughs> well, ogres, you know, they're they're very top heavy and it just kind of weighs down after a while. They don't of lack all, core strength. Yeah. Oh my God. Of all the criticism that that like I've edited over the years that have sort of sunk into my psyche, like Noel Murray's take on how the Ice Age films yes, are that's basically right. I was channeling Noel, you're right. <laughs> written by a bunch of forty year old men, like writing movies for seven year olds about am I just not as cool as I yeah. used to be when I was a teenager? <laughs> like it's it's just always really stuck with me. But yeah, it is that question of like you people write what they know. So I haven't been up on I haven't really been keeping up with <laughs> the Infinity War discussion broadly speaking. What what is this about Thanos being the hero of the thing that that well, more the protagonist yeah. than the hero? The, the pr- protagonist it's sort of being more yeah. his story than anybody else's. Oh, okay. sure, okay. yeah, not in the sense it's that, not like sort know, of the Empire yay. was right kind of thing. Okay, because uh, I've seen that argument. I don't like I don't like that argument very much. The Empire being right, I think. No, right. no, just in terms of of story arc, like you know, he has a plan and a whole bunch of people stand in his way, and he heroically tries the end happily ever after like mm. that is that is the way the film is structured um and people are interested in that whether they approve of it or not oh, okay got it well now that that's now that we've cleared all that up for me uh <laughs> that wraps up our feedback for this episode we always appreciate when our listeners share their thoughts their recommendations and anything else film related to reach us you can leave a short voicemail at 773-234-9730 or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net We may feature your response on a future episode or post it on Facebook for discussion. That's it for this episode of The Next Picture Show. In part two, we'll bring in Deadpool 2, starring one-man, all-purpose gremlin Ryan Reynolds. Look for that later this week, or better yet, subscribe to The Next Picture Show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your podcatcher of choice. Find us at nextpictureshow.net. Follow us at Facebook.com slash Next Picture Show and follow us on Twitter at Next Picture Pod so you'll always know when a new episode drops. Until then, the elevator doors are open. Please leave. <laughs> Start spreading the news. I'm leaving today. I want to be a part of it. New York, New York. Yes, sir. These vagabond shoes. Are longing to stray and step around the hall a bit, New York.